0: You're listening to the Fresh Hell podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this or they might turn out like us.
1: Hi, I'm Annie in the US. And I'm Johanna in Austria and you're listening to your favorite international podcast hosted by two women who never met in real life but who are now great friends after discovering that we have a lot of common interests. We met online six years ago and have been doing this podcast for almost five years which is half a decade. Five years. But it doesn't really count because that's three years of COVID so...
0: It is like that three years just never happened. It's just a time suck that was stolen from all of us. So it's just two years, basically. Yeah. The biggest reason that we're still here after almost half a, I almost said half a century. Sometimes it feels like that. Um, After half a decade later is, of course, everyone listening, you, the listeners, showing us the most incredible support possible. Special shout out this week to our YouTube listener, Kelly. We see your comments and we want to say thank you. We really, really do appreciate you. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you. Also, thank you to everyone who left a comment on Spotify under our latest episode. Now that we finally know how to see them and how to read them, it's really so much fun. And if you want to know more about all the ways to support the show, please listen until the end because that's when we'll tell you all about that. Now we jump right into today's case. It's an Austrian case. We haven't had one of those in a while, I think. And it actually came as a blessing in a way because Annie is battling a nasty cold at the moment. And I think it's a good thing that I will do most of the talking. You can relax. Yeah,
0: I always think it's a good thing when you do most of the talking. But today, (laughs) today in particular...
1: The biggest sources for this episode are the books Die Wilde Wander by Gabriele Hasmann. I have used this book before. I think it was for the Martha Marek episode. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Other sources are an article titled Österreichische Mördergeschichten, die Mörderin mit dem Engelsgesicht by Andrew Grimes on dernostalgiker.at as well as a bunch of contemporary newspaper articles, many from the Arbeiterzeitung and the Kronenzeitung. As always, we'll link the sources on Facebook. So this all takes place in Vienna after World War II. And I've talked about it before, last time in the episode about the murder of Ilona Faber. I talked about life and how it was in Austria and especially in Vienna after World War II. So this case takes place in 1952, right at the height of post-war Vienna, when it was divided into four occupational zones by the Allied forces. So let's talk about life in the early 1950s in Vienna, at least a little bit. I think it's very hard to imagine for many, not only for our young listeners, but maybe also for people from other continents like North America, who haven't experienced cities and countries being divided and who only ever read about the Iron Curtain, for example. Yeah, no, this is, this is interesting
0: to me, to be honest.
1: I think it's real. I mean, I didn't experience the divided, uh, Austria divided occupational zones, obviously, but I grew up pretty much next to the Iron Curtain. Mm. East Austria is watering. Hungary, then we have Czech Republic, and these were all countries, we couldn't just travel easily. Yeah. Almost almost impossible to travel there, yeah. So Vienna, like other parts of Europe, was liberated from Nazi control by the advancing Allied forces during the final stages of World War II. The liberation of Vienna occurred in April of 1945, and it involved a combination of Soviet and Western Allied military efforts. The Red Army of the Soviet Union was the primary force responsible for liberating Vienna. As the Soviet forces moved westward through Eastern Europe, they approached Vienna in early April of 1945. The Battle of Vienna began on 2nd of April, 1945, when Soviet forces launched their offensive against their heavily fortified German defenses in and around the city. The fighting was intense and street to street, as German forces determined to hold the city resisted fiercely. By the way, when I say German forces, I obviously mean German-Austrian forces. We were part, as Ostmark of uh, Germany, just to make that clear. The Soviet forces, along with the assistance from the other Allied units, managed to encircle Vienna by... 13th of April, facing the dire situation and realizing the futility of continued resistance, German forces in Vienna under the command of General Rudolf von Bühnau surrendered to the Soviet Red Army on 13th of April, effectively ending the Battle of Vienna. I think I talked uh, also a little bit about that in the Ilona Faber case because of the Russian Russian monument monument where the murder Mm -hmm. of Ilona Faber took place, yeah. After the surrender, Vienna was occupied by Soviet forces and the city came under Soviet control. This marked the end of Nazi rule in Vienna and the city transitioned into a period of military occupation. The liberation of Vienna was a crucial moment in the final days of World War II in Europe. The city had been a stronghold for the Nazis and its liberation represented a significant step towards the defeat of Nazi Germany. The end of the war in Europe followed shortly thereafter with Germany's unconditional surrender on 7th of May 1945, leading to the victory in Europe, VE Day, on 8th of May 1945. After World War II, Vienna was divided into four occupational zones administered by the Allied powers, the United States, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom and France. The division mirrored the broader division of Austria into four zones, which was agreed upon by the Allies in 1945. The city of Vienna, like Berlin, was located in the Soviet zone and as a result it was also divided into four sectors. The American, British and French sectors formed the western part of the city, while the Soviet sector comprised the eastern part. The city was situated at the heart of the Cold War struggle between the Soviet Union and the Western Allies. The division of Vienna and Austria was meant to be a temporary arrangement, but as tensions between the Soviet Union and the Western Allies escalated, the separation persisted for several years. The city became a symbol of the broader East-West divide during the early years of the Cold War. Of course, the division of Vienna into occupational zones, I mean, uh, even more so for Berlin Mm. in later years, but uh, in the early 50s, you could also feel that really in Vienna. That would be so
0: strange. It's very hard to imagine Boston as not part of Massachusetts, like on a much smaller scale, you know, obviously, just as a city to a...
1: Or that you need a passport to go from one district in Boston to another to the next yeah,
0: one. It's, yeah. It really is so difficult to imagine.
1: Yeah, because of course, the, the division of Vienna into these four occupational zones had really significant effects on the daily lives of Viennese people. Uh, families, friends, neighborhoods were just separated. Just if you're on the wrong side of the street, you're in a different zone. Crossing from one sector to another often required passing through the military checkpoints, which could be really time-consuming and cumbersome. And you needed to have the right papers to even be able to cross between sectors. I think at
0: first it was just people who
1: worked in other zones and things if you like you this business, later. It became like a little you, bit yeah, easier. You had to have yeah.
0: business. What's your business? You had to have some business there.
1: Yeah. The division of the city created uh, really a sense of isolation and
0: disruption in daily routines. I would never leave the house. I would just never want to leave the house, honestly. It sounds so stressful. Yeah, yeah. But if you, you had to, you had to. Yeah, awful.
1: The different occupational zones were subject to the economic and political systems of the occupying powers, which led to variations in living conditions, variations in employment opportunities, and variations in access to resources between the zones, meaning that living in the Soviet zone was very different from living in the US zone, for Hmm. example. The occupational zones also had different cultural influences, and this was reflected in various aspects of daily life, including education, media, and cultural activities. What movies were you allowed to see or were played in theaters, Mm. or which music or which records could you buy, things like this. Each sector had its own administration, and this led to the development of distinct social and cultural identities in different parts of the city. I don't know. Have you been to Berlin? If you look at Berlin and you cross from the part that used to be East Berlin to West Berlin, you can see a clear difference in the buildings, for example. You don't have that in Vienna. The occupational zones didn't exist that long that it really would influence the buildings. I
0: see. Okay.
1: The city also became a hotspot for Cold War tensions and residents were often caught in the middle of these political rivalries. The propaganda from both sides influenced public opinion and contributed to an atmosphere of pretty much suspicion and mistrust. Uh, There was also quite some espionage going on and that didn't end with the retreat of the Allied forces, interestingly enough. That went on pretty much until the fall of the Iron Curtain. And I think it makes sense in a way because when you think about the location of Vienna, it's just... So close, it's the closest capital located to the, to the former Eastern Bloc countries. Mm. Despite all these challenges, Vienna remained a very vibrant cultural center and its residents adapted to the circumstances as best as possible. They just kept going. I mean, there wasn't anything else they could do, right? They had to accept it and just right. move on with their lives. Efforts to reach an agreement on the status of Austria and Vienna took several years and on 15th of May 1955, the Austrian state treaty was signed declaring Austria's permanent neutrality and ending the occupation. Vienna as the capital saw the withdrawal of the foreign troops and the city was reunified as the federal capital of a neutral and independent Austria. The Allied forces began to withdraw from Vienna and Austria as a whole. Following the signing of the Austrian state treaty, process of withdrawal took place in several stages. It's not like just one day they all packed up and left, obviously. The treaty stipulated that all occupying forces should leave Austrian territory by 25th of October 1955. The departure of the Allied troops was a gradual process and by the specified deadline, Austria was free from foreign military occupation. And so the 26th of October, the first day without Allied forces on Austrian grounds, is our national holiday, our Independence Day, if you will call it this. But this is taking it way too far already. I just wanted to tell you all about that. So if you are ever in a pub quiz situation where you need to know about the Austrian national holiday, I got you covered. (laughs) No, that was really interesting. I learned a lot in that background bit. So as I said before, this case takes place in 1952. So it would be another three years until Austria would become independent from the Allied forces. You know how there are always people who manage to profit off of war and post-war eras? And I don't only mean arms factories or construction companies but also somewhat average people who managed to use chaotic times for their own advantage and make somewhat of a fortune out of it. One of these people was Johann Artholt. After Vienna had been liberated in 1945, he had managed to butter up to the Soviet army. I think he used to have a little grocery during the war. So he was making friends with the Soviet Army, and in return, they gave him a little delicatessen in the Ninth District. Do you also say delicatessen? Yes.
0: It's so random, though. It's like, listen, we really appreciate what you've done for us, so here is a meat shop.
1: Well, I guess because he was he was the owner of a grocery store yeah. already. He had his eyes on that deli. delicatessen because. The former owners of that store had fled Vienna as the Allied troops advanced towards the city. So it's just like, okay, this is empty. You can have Mm. it. You can run it. The 9th District would later be in the U.S. occupational zone, and Atold was making friends in high places, not only in the U.S. army, but pretty much with all four of the Allied forces. And this led to him gaining access to a lot of food, also a lot of black market food, that was otherwise still rather scarce in the city. And he could sell them also at an unexpectedly low price. Especially, funnily enough, Cadbury chocolate. Chocolate was such a rare and expensive luxury and Artold would soon be known as either the Chocolate King or the Cadbury King from alsagrund I will always remember my grandmother's stories about the time after the war and how she and her friends learned a few English phrases so they could flirt with the U.S. soldiers, uh, because they were known to generously hand out chewing gum and chocolate. And for the rest of her life, my grandmother would have very fond memories of the U.S. chocolate. I guess it was Hershey's, because
0: that's what the U.S. soldiers had in their rations, as far as I remember. I love that. I, I would wish I could send you some for her. Is it weird that I love the idea of soldiers having things to flirt with? Like, along the lines of the film Mrs. Henderson Presents, starring the great Dame Judy Dench, without getting too much into the film, but just having some joy in the world and the awfulness of it all, you know? It just yeah. makes me happy.
1: Yeah, and she always really spoke fondly of the, of the U.S. soldiers. Like, they were really nice, she said, always. That makes me happy. Johann Arthold became so successful with his business, he managed to open another store, And then his wife started her own business and he even bought a whole racing stable. While so many had to live a very modest life after the war and barely managed to scrape by, Arthold lived a life of luxury. Luxury cars, a servant, the private racing stable, and also a number of affairs and mistresses. Life was very sweet for the Cadbury King, no doubt. And the married man and father of two lived a very extravagant lifestyle, enjoying countless pleasures and the Viennese nightlife. And that's how he met Adrien Eckhart. Or better, that's how they met again.
0: Bum, bum, bum. Sorry, that was serious foreshadowing. I'm ready.
1: Adrienne Eckart was born on 26 of July 1929 in Vienna to Oscar and Paula Eckart, so right at the beginning of the global economic crisis, also known as the Great Depression. To save money, the couple and their young daughter had to move in with Oscar's mother, which was overall not a great living condition. The grandmother was harsh and would often insinuate to Adrienne that she would have preferred a grandson. Of course, this is a horrible thing to do and to say, but I just want to add that this was still a very widespread sentiment back in those days. Sons were supposed to support the family financially while daughters were supposed to be married off, and they would not be able to take care of the parents and the grandparents, right? Mm-hmm. Soon, Father Oscar would lose his job at a bank. And so the family left Vienna and moved to Wiener Neustadt, south of Vienna. And by the way, fun fact, that's where I was born and raised. Nowadays, it's like a 30-minute drive. In Wiener Neustadt, Oskar and Paula found employment at the Wiener Neustädter Flugzeugwerke, an aircraft plant building airplanes for the German army, the so-called Wehrmacht. The facility operated as a branch of the state-owned Messerschmitt AG alongside Messerschmitt GmbH in Regensburg and the Leipzig Erler Maschinenwerk, becoming the main supplier of the Messerschmitt Bf 109. By the end of World War II, the plant had produced 8,545 of these fighter aircrafts and at the peak of production, the Wiener Neustädter Flugzeugbetriebe had more than 15,000 employees.
0: Wow. Reaction? It just took for a second for 15,000 employees to kind yeah, of... Yeah, plus,
1: I think when I was attending school in Wiener Neustadt, they had like 20,000 inhabitants. Wow. So that's that's a lot of people working there.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Of course, the plant closed with the end of World War Two. but when I was a kid, uh, there were still many people remembering this aircraft plant, and there are still some locations where the name reminds of the fact that airplanes used to be produced there, uh, not only during World War II, by the way, but also during World War I, when the Öffag was situated in Wiener Neustadt. That's the Österreichische Flugzeugfabrik AG. And yes, the German word for airplane is Flugzeug, which translates to flight thing. Flight thing. Flight thing. We also have Feuerzeug, Uh, for lighter, which is fire thing. So we have a lot of things. So the Eckerts are working at the aircraft plant and Adrienne is attending school. And after the war was over and the plant was closed down, the Eckerts and their daughter relocated to Vienna, where Adrienne started attending nursing school. She received her diploma in 1949 and started working at a children's hospital in the 2nd district. Adrienne met a man and started a relationship and I read somewhere they even moved in together. I think while living together as an unmarried couple was still pretty much frowned upon, especially Austria back in those days was, was deeply Catholic. I think in those post-war days, people would often look the other, other way. Many men had died, many women were widows, and I think it was hard for them to support themselves, so everybody yeah. just, you know, tried to get by. Adrienne became pregnant but lost the pregnancy due to illness. I think it was jaundice. This would put a strain on the relationship and the couple broke up. Or rather, the man ended the relationship. And this was when Adrienne kind of lost her way. Hurt by the breakup, she tried to extort money from her former lover. I have no idea what she thought she had on him or what she told him. He, however, reported her to the police and she was tried for extortion and received a three-month suspended sentence. And of course, this caused her to lose her job as a nurse and she would probably have had a hard time to find employment at another hospital in the city. I'm honestly not sure if she even tried to keep working as a nurse or if she knew she wouldn't stand a chance. I think she tried to apply for other positions in other hospitals, but then she started to work at the butchers next. Not for long, because pretty soon she was suspected to have stolen money from her employer. And so she lost this job as well. And I guess it was pretty much impossible to find regular employment after those two incidents. And so she started to work at bars and nightclubs as a so-called animierdame or gesellschaftsdame. I think in English this is called a bar girl. So basically... These were or are attractive young women employed by the bar to motivate people to buy drinks. Uh, the more expensive, the better. I'm honestly not sure if this concept still exists in Austria outside of the red light district. i worked in many bars in Vienna. Nowadays, it's mostly the regular waiter or barkeeper who is supposed to animate the customers to spend more. Unfortunately, they mostly don't receive a percentage of the sale. They can just hope for a bigger tip. I always hear this from from tourists, especially American tourists coming to Europe who think that all of Europe is against tipping and you don't have to tip your waiter here. But that's not entirely the truth. It depends on the country. Austrian waiters rely on tips as well. So now you know. Anyway, back to Adrienne. Sometime in the early 1950s, while working as a bar girl at a bar called Filmhof in the 6th District, she ran into an old acquaintance, the Chocolate King, Johann Atort. If I'm a king, the Chocolate King sounds pretty, pretty amazing, not gonna lie. (laughs) Shortly after the war had ended, so seven years ago when Adrienne was around 15 years old, Adrian and her family lived close to Arthold's store, and she would sometimes run errands there, and the chocolate king was always rather nice to her and would often give her additional items and sweets free of charge. And I don't want to be kind of negative, but I think it's safe to assume that he might not have done so out of the kindness of his heart, but because he had some interest in the teenager.
0: Yeah, he sounds like a real Arthold.
1: So in the early 1950s, he encountered the young woman at the Café Filmhof and he immediately started to court her. By the way, I found an ad for the Filmhof Bar from 1923 and the ad claims that the Filmhof is THE place to be for the who-is-who of the Austrian world of movies. And you probably think that wasn't that big of a scene in 1920s Vienna but actually, after World War I, we already had quite a decent movie production scene. In 1920, there were 142 movies produced in Vienna, and I think that was the year with the most Austrian movie productions to this day. So, there you go. Johann Artold frequents the Filmhof and runs into Adrienne. And he pretty quickly has his eye on the young, beautiful woman. He would frequently invite Adrienne to dinner, coffee, or for a glass of wine at one of the typical Austrian wine taverns called Heurige. What makes a Heurigen a Heurigen? I'm glad you (laughs) ask. Let me share some of the quintessential East Austrian culture with you. Heurigen are known for offering locally produced wine, often from the vineyards of the tavern owners or nearby wineries. The atmosphere is very relaxed and patrons can enjoy a variety of wines along with simple traditional Austrian dishes. The menu may include mostly cold platters with cheese, cold cut and bread. Nowadays, also often warm dishes such as schnitzel, pork roast, or blunzenkröstl made from blood sausage and potatoes and various other regional specialties. One distinctive feature of the Heurigen is that they are usually only open for a limited time during the year. The term heuriger itself is derived from the term Heurig, meaning this year in Austrian-German. It signifies that the wine served at these establishments is from the most recent harvest. We also have that with potatoes. We have Heurige, uh, which means that they are the potatoes from this year's harvest. So if you're ever in this area of Austria, please go to a Heuriger. In some places, it might be found under the name Buschenschank. It's your chance to experience Austrian wild culture, Austrian dishes in a very charming and informal setting, especially during late spring, summer and early fall, as most Heurigen have outdoor seating in very lovely garden-like settings. Back to Mr. Artholdt. So Atold takes Adrienne Eckhart on all these outings, trying to get her to be another one of his mistresses. But there was one problem. Adrienne was not at all attracted to the 44-year-old Chocolate King. I think he was one of these... How do I describe it properly without sounding kind of weird or wicked or and blamey? I think he was one of these people who are very loud and obnoxious because they think they can buy whatever and whoever with their money, and he definitely had a bit of a lack of manners.
0: Yeah, not everyone who has something bad to them lit up a room with their smile. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think it doesn't mean they deserve... Exactly, yeah. You know.
1: He was the kind of guy, if you're sitting at the heuriger at another table... And it's the kind of table you look over because he's so loud and obnoxious.
0: He's a guy who, yeah, my friends and I used to have a bet in how long it would take creepy old guy to find me. Like when we were in college at university, you know, you'd go to the bar and it would be like, all right, you know, h- how long? And it was, I'm a magnet. I, not anymore, thank God, now I'm creepy old lady. But like for for years, I was just a creepy old guy magnet. They'd come creeping out of the woodwork. <laughs> it's funny, but also not. Yeah, (laughs) also very much not. All right.
1: It's now late at night on 21st of November, 1952, a Wednesday. Around 11.30 p.m., a police officer is making his rounds. He passes by Atold's store and he sees the scroll bars closed. Is scroll bar the, the correct term?
0: Is that like the gate thing that you pull down over the shop? Yeah. Yeah. How would you call that? Well, I have no idea, but now we all know. I think we're all on the same page now. So he
1: sees the scroll bars closed. Everything is quiet. Nothing seems to be out of the ordinary. So he continues his way. It's now 1.20 a.m. when he passes by the store again. And this time the scroll bar is not fully closed. And of course it could just be the owner who forgot something. But the lights are off and the police officer doesn't hear anyone in there. So obviously he thinks that there could have been a break in and he pulls his revolver and he makes his way into the dark store. And there, and there in a small room adjacent to the main room of the store, he finds Johann Atold lying in a big puddle of blood. His own blood. His head had been smashed in and his throat had been cut. It's a grisly crime scene and because of the brutality of the murder, investigators are pretty sure that the murderer must have been a man. I mean, women poison their husbands and lovers, but women don't commit break-ins and smash people's heads in, not to mention the throat cutting. Okay, so what do the investigators find? They figure out that Atold had planned on paying some bigger sum he owed to someone and had withdrawn 6,000 shilling from his account. The cash is nowhere to be found. The victim's wallet is missing, as well as a diamond ring Atold used to wear. The investigators also find two cups that were used to drink beer, which indicates that the victim had someone over before he was murdered. Did he know the murderer? Had the victim himself invited his murderer in? They also found that the murderer had washed their bloody hands in the sink of the store and had dried their hands on a towel. But the most promising lead is something they find in the victim's coat pocket. Two used tickets from that evening for the streetcar. Line 38 that goes to Grinzing, where Vienna's most popular Heurigen are located. The police finds the conductor who worked the 38 that evening and indeed she remembers seeing Johann Artold accompanied by a young, blonde woman wearing a fur coat. They also find witnesses who have seen the two at a Heurigen that evening, where they stayed from 8pm to 11pm, then they left and went to get a coffee at another place, and they even find a witness testifying that he saw Artold and the young woman entering his deli store shortly before midnight. The police is still absolutely certain that they are looking for a male murderer, but they are obviously desperate to find the young woman as she might be an important witness. But nobody knows who she is. And then the investigators receive another important tip. This happens when two sex workers are arrested. I think prostitution was still illegal in the 1950s in Austria. I could be wrong because, again, that was like uh, illegal, not illegal, illegal, not illegal, like going back and forth Mm. uh, throughout history. But I think during that time it was illegal. Anyway, they are arrested, but they are quite outspoken uh, sassy ladies and they ask the police officers if they have nothing better to do with their time, nothing more important, like for example solving the murder of the chocolate king. And they let the officers know that they should visit the Café Filmhof, because that's where Artold had spent a lot of time and where he had contact with one of the bar girls and she was called Adi. So the investigators go and visit the Filmhof and they ask for Adi and that's of course Adrienne Eckart. She tells them that yes, she knew Artold, and she had been at the Heurigen with him that evening. Then they had gone to his store where they had a cup of beer, but that he was well and alive when she left and then she went home. She has no idea what could have happened and hadn't seen or heard anything suspicious. Uh, The police still check her stuff and they actually find blood on her fur jacket and on her shoes. And so they take her to the station to interrogate her further. And at first she keeps denying knowing anything more than she has already told them, but confronted with the fact that they found blood on her belongings, she quickly changes her story. Now the story goes. Well, she was sitting in the store drinking beer with Atot, when someone knocked on the door... And Atold told her to go check who it is. So she goes and there's a man and Atold tells her to let him in. So the man comes in, she didn't know the guy, he was wearing a beige duffel coat I think she said, and he greeted Atold with the words, hi old crook. And then he started drinking beer from one of the cups. When Johann Atold turned his back to the man to get another beer, the stranger pulled out a heavy object from his pocket and started hitting Atold in the head. Atold fell to the ground but didn't die immediately. He kept groaning and moving. Adrienne was in utter shock and looked on in horror. The stranger warned her that if she made a single sound, she would be next. Then he ordered her to get a knife and bring it to him. She brought the knife and the attacker told her to turn Johann Atold on his back. And that's how she got blood on herself. After that, the man had cut the victim's throat. She was ordered to wash the knife and then she was allowed to leave. The unknown assailant stayed behind, and the last thing she saw was that he was taking stuff from Artold and was washing things in the sink. She ran home, scared that the murderer would follow her. She hadn't contacted the police because she feared for her
0: own life. And then the police said, Thank you, miss. We knew it was a strong man who did this. <laughs> Thanks, little lady. Thanks, little lady. We knew there was no way a woman... Could murder this man. Of
1: course, you out there will already know that this was all kinds of bullshit, and so did the police. They kept questioning her and questioning her, and after being interrogated for two days, she made a crucial mistake. And I honestly love this one. I'm so excited to tell you, because it could be right off a Columbo episode. So the investigator asked her a simple, innocent question. Did you turn off the lights when you left? And she replied, yes. And then the investigator said, well, why would you turn off the lights and leave the attacker in the store in the dark? And that's when she knew she fucked up and she cracked and she finally admitted the murder of Johann Atold. And here's what she testified and named as a reason for the murder. So, Johann had met Adrienne at the Filmhof and he had started to invite her out. She had allegedly asked for a job as a clerk at his store, and he had refused, but had offered her to become his mistress. She didn't want that, but kept meeting the man in the hope he would change his mind. Atold had usually paid for their outings, but according to Adrienne, he never gave her expensive gifts or money in any way. One day she went to meet him at his store and he invited her in, and she saw that he was in the company of another woman and Arthur told her that the other woman was a sex worker and that he wanted to have a threesome with her and Adrienne. The woman started to undress and came towards Adrienne, but the young woman wanted nothing to do with any of it. She was extremely shocked and offended that he would propose such a thing to her, and let's not forget that this was way before any sign of the sexual revolution and that the suggestion of a threesome would have been extremely shocking to most women back in the day, I think.
0: This was way before society got to that place in life,
1: yeah. It's still kind of creepy
0: that he just, you know... he so, You know who he sounds... You know who he's played by in the movie is Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Uh. But I
1: I don't think he's really that, that... I think he was pushy and was used to getting everything, but I don't think he was like... Aggressive. I could be wrong, but I don't think he was really uh, kind of... What's the English word for it? Übergriffig would be the German word. Yeah. I don't think she was actually offended.
0: You don't think? If this story actually happened, do you think she was really offended that offended? I could see that. Maybe. Yeah. I mean she was yeah. working in a bar, but I think it was very
1: important for, for bar girls for Anime Damen to make sure that they're not confused with sex workers, for example. Fair enough. No, I think I think if that story happened that she would it would have made sense that she was offended mm. by it and shocked, yeah. So, okay, she, she left, and since that moment, well, that's what she claimed afterwards, that since that moment, she had developed a deep-rooted hatred towards Johan Atot. And she swore to herself that she would make him pay. That's where I start to think that's a little bit of uh, nonsense and an excuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tell me afterwards what you think. So okay. On the 21st of November 1952, she had agreed to go to a Heurigen with him. She went to his store to pick him up, but she had a meat grinder with her and she claimed that she had just picked it up from her aunts and asked if she could leave it at the store because obviously she didn't want to schlep a meat grinder around Vienna. Fair enough. After they returned to the store shortly before midnight, she obviously needed to enter the store with Atold to retrieve the meat grinder. He offered her a glass of beer and so the two sat down and chatted for a while, drinking beer. Until Adrienne found the perfect moment when Johann had his back turned to her and she took the meat grinder and started smashing his head in. But he didn't die and she took a knife and cut his throat. And then she decided it would be best to make it look like a break-in and she took some groceries... Uh, She took the wallet containing around 150 shilling and the money in the cash register that was pretty much the same amount, according to her. She also took the diamond ring and claimed to have thrown it through a drainage cover into the sewers. She didn't know anything about the 6,000 shilling cash, by the way, according to the historical inflation calculator. 6,000 shilling from 1952 would be roughly 6,000 euros or almost 6,000 dollars today. And so 300 shilling would be 300 euros more or less. After she took everything she wanted to take, she turned off the lights and went home to her room that she had rented. The meat grinder was found in the kitchen of her landlord or slash roommate. So Adrian Eckert is arrested and brought to jail to await her trial. In February of 1953, she finds out that she's actually pregnant and once more she changes her story. Now she claims that the real murderer and the father of her child is a man named Constantine Bertini. According to Adrienne's story, she met Bertini while working as a bar girl at another bar, the Moulin Rouge. Don't confuse it with the famous Moulin Rouge in Paris. Bertini allegedly offered her a job, but in an entirely different industry because he was rumored to be involved in drug deals, uh, mostly morphine. The two started a relationship and now the big coincidence, Johann Atold was rumored to owe Bertini quite some money. On the night of the murder, Bertini supposedly went to Atold's business on alserstrasse and killed him because he couldn't settle his debts. Nobody believed this new story. Uh, investigations into Bertini led to nothing, a Constantin Bertini could not be found. Furthermore, Adrian Eckert could not provide any information about Bertini's address, despite allegedly having had a relationship with him. Also, it was a bit hard to explain why Bertini would carry around a meat grinder from Adrian's apartment to use it to beat Johann Arthold to death. What's interesting to note is that in spring of 1953, another prisoner came forward claiming to know Bertini he stated that he knew an intermediary's address because Bertini was supposed to provide him with a forged passport. Again, nobody believed the story, and I think by now we all know so many cases where prisoners try to involve themselves as witnesses in a case to try to gain some advantages for their own sentencing, right?
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Adrienne's trial began on 23rd of March 1953, and of course the media was all over the case. A pretty young woman being a violent murderer, sex work, debt, money, drugs, the chocolate king of the Alsagrund. This case had truly everything. Adrienne is labeled ice cold and murderer with the face of an angel. I think they used that one also for Mata Marek, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, that one's
0: pretty pretty common, that one, I think.
1: The verdict comes on 25th of March, 1953, so the whole trial only took two days. Adrian Eckert is unanonymously found guilty of the robbery slash murder of Johann Atold as charged. She's sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labor. The particularly brutal nature of the crime added to the severity of the sentence. Her lawyer, the at the time very famous Dr. Stern, appealed the decision and that was met with partial success. Dr. Stern himself has a very fascinating life or had a very fascinating life. He was a Jewish lawyer who was married to a Christian wife, and that's why he was one of 30 lawyers in Vienna who were allowed to practice and represent Jewish clients during the Third Reich. Mm. Unfortunately, he was not able to save many of his clients, but yes, extremely fascinating man working all his life from early mornings till late at night and barely taking days off. Back to Adrienne's sentence and appeal, so on 2nd of July 1953, the Supreme Court confirmed the guilty verdict from the first instance, but this time they considered Adrienne's youth and her overall unfortunate circumstances. The sentence was reduced to 20 years. Dr. Stern made further attempts with requests for a retrial, but that remained unsuccessful. Adrienne wouldn't serve 20 years, though. In 1967, due to a so-called Christmas amnesty, she was released from prison early. Uh, Do you have that in the U.S. as well? I know there are several countries who have this kind of things.
0: Not generally speaking. There was, after the First World War, an amnesty to sort of draft dodgers and other war crimes of that sort, espionage, I think World War I-related crimes. And that was done in the 30s by Roosevelt, but it's the only thing I can really think of. Nothing to this scale.
1: The remainder of her sentence was conditionally forgiven with a probation period until 1973. Adrian Eckert received a new name and reportedly went to stay with, uh, I think, relatives or acquaintances or whatnot. It's assumed that she moved to Upper Austria under a new name. And that's. All we know. Nothing more is known about her life thereafter. Do you also find it weird that she got a new name? I think a lot of, of uh, listeners will, uh, like, kind of raise an eyebrow on that.
0: It reminds me of Carla Hamulka. It's common. In a lot of places, you're allowed to just change your name and start a new life somewhere. Yeah. Which I do have issues with.
1: Honestly, I think that the biggest motive was money, though. I think the whole hatred stuff, I mean, she might have been shocked and offended and, and disgust, been disgusted by him and his kind of obnoxious behavior. But I don't think that's why she killed him. I think she used that as an explanation and as an excuse. I think it was money because apparently Adrienne was in quite some financial trouble and I think she might have indeed taken the 6,000, and she probably didn't throw away the diamond ring into the sewer. But who can say? Who
0: knows? Mm -hmm. I don't know whether to see her as somebody who sort of was a victim and offended, who acted out, or somebody who was really diabolical and calculating. Like, part of me is like, was she ever pregnant the first time, or was it a lie to keep the guy with her because the relationship wasn't going well? So I don't really, I have a million questions, but I am, I do think, I think she did it and money was the motive.
1: I don't even think there's any doubt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you think about her having no problem uh, trying to extort money from her former lover, no exactly. problem stealing money from Plus, she, she her morals were already really in a gray area there.
0: Yeah. There was just a pattern of like consistent red flags over yeah. and over and over again.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the story of the murder of the chocolate king from Alsagrund, the Cadbury king. Uh, my something good is that today was the first day that I went for a walk with the dogs with my winter jacket and I had to take it off because it was too warm.
0: Oh. we
1: already I already have the snowdrops, the, the little white flowers in wow. my front yard, and that's always the first flowers to start blooming in, in spring, well, when spring starts. I also saw the first primrose buds today. So we did it. We got through (laughs) winter. Uh, There's still going to be a couple of cold nights, but uh, yeah, we got through. I know that we're
0: usually like three to four weeks ahead of you. So just keep keep going. I was going to say, you are easily a month ahead of me. Yeah, another four weeks for you. (laughs) Definitely, at least, at least. Uh, But I'm so happy. I'll take it. (laughs) You know what mine was? I was able to be there for a family member's funeral recently and it was just, it was just really nice to spend time with all of those people and I'm going to really try to be better about, it's that thing, you know, when you only see family at funerals, like certain family and it's like, we really have to make more of an effort to see each other and then you just keep saying that until the next funeral and it's like, you know. But it really was, it was really, really nice to to see people. And so that was really good.
1: If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us a huge favor. Go to your podcast app, leave us a rating and or review on iTunes and all other apps on Spotify. You can tell us under each episode what you think of this episode. Please be kind. I mean, you can be, you can criticize us, of course, but don't be mean. That's all I want to see. Uh, You're not so far, but I'm just, you know, (laughs) preemptively, is that the word? Yes.
0: Preemptively begging you not to be unkind. (laughs) It's fine.
1: Also on YouTube, thank you for all the comments. I really enjoyed a lot. And if you're interested in supporting us in any other way, please just share our content. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, whoever. If you're in some Facebook group who asks, hey, do you have any recommendations for weird, creepy, spooky, murdery podcasts? Here we are.
0: Um, mm-hmm. I love
1: that when when people join our Facebook group, they have to answer a question, how they found us. And so many times it's like, oh, a friend told me. So there you go. You see, it's working.
0: It's really nice. Yeah.
1: Another way to support us, of course, is via Patreon. That's really what keeps the light on over here. We're going to have our next get-together By the end of February, I think. Mm -hmm. So keep your eyes out for the exact date. And what else? Join our Facebook group. Look at our webpage. There you find links to our merch store, to our PO box, to our email address, which is
0: freshhelppodcast at gmail.com. That's
1: right. If
0: you have an interesting listener story send it to our email at com. we have gotten a few great listener stories but we don't have enough for a full episode so if you have a great story don't tell it in the group tell it to us and then we'll yes. tell everybody
1: also case suggestions you can always send us case suggestions especially if they're yeah. historic crimes weird things hauntings we're absolutely interested to hear about those oh yeah um, and that's it. Please tell your pets, we said hi, hug them, cuddle them, treat them nicely, um take them to the vet, be kind to them, be kind to your fellow human being, and most importantly, and the hardest part of it all is be kind to yourself.
0: And until next week, if you're going through hell.
1: Keep going. Choose. Now I want chocolate. Bye. All the talk about
0: chocolate king. Chocolate. Uh, chocolate. I have no chocolate in this house. I'm gonna go eat some cough drops, it's gonna be great.